What's up? You're listening to The Long Game, and I'm your host, David Lee Kim, co-founder of Omniscient Digital. In this episode, we chat with Charlie Liang. Charlie is the head of marketing at Finch, and previously, he spent four years building Lattice's demand gen organization and served in demand gen roles at companies like Heap, Engageo, and Big Panda. In this conversation, we talk about building marketing orgs from scratch and how to figure out which channels to prioritize and invest in in the early days. He shares his experience building marketing programs at Lattice and Finch and tells us a little bit about what he's currently testing out right now. Charlie also explains the importance of getting executive buy-in as the first marketing hire who's building out the function and communicating when it's time to hire or if there are new opportunities to go after. We talk about the hiring process and share tips on how we filter for top candidates and how the team culture evolves as you grow. Now, this episode had a couple issues with my audio, but fortunately, Charlie's audio came in perfectly fine. I think you're going to learn a lot from him. Here's my conversation with Charlie Liang. Charlie, welcome to The Long Game. Thanks for having me, David. Really happy uh, we were finally able to make this work. Yeah, of course. We, we'll, we'll always make it work. Thanks for making the time. So to start off, maybe let's give listeners kind of a highlight reel of your career and how you landed as head of marketing at Finch. I know my, my understanding is you thrive and like this early stage startup life. So tell us about your experience there. Yeah, well, I can start. I mean, I can start from the beginning, but I won't spend too much time to, you know, to, to save y'all's uh, attention spans. I kind of stumbled into marketing. Um, I did not uh, get enough business experience in college, mostly because I was doing college things. Um, so stumbled into marketing after probably a few dozen interviews, right? At that point, just wanted to get anything I could get, was was tired of, you know, staying at my parents. <laughs> um, and I really liked marketing. So uh, the role was a marketing analyst, but it was, um, you know, marketer number five at a company called Adaptive Planning, um, which which is now called Adaptive Insights. But there I really cut my chops in everything. It wasn't even called demand gen at the time. It was just demand gen slash marketing ops. So sending out email marketing campaigns, building lead scoring, building nurture tracks, working with SDR teams uh, to get you know, attraction at different events and, and hosting a lot of events. So I, I, I discovered that I really liked marketing because it was a good blend of left and right brain. And then fast forward from there, um, worked at some really cool startups, uh, was most recently at Lattice, where I headed up their demand gen uh, and built the company up from a series A to a um, to a 700 person company. Um, spent almost four years there, uh, took a few months off and then decided I wanted more. So uh, so I, I was talking with a few different companies and, and Finch really stood out for, you know, for two reasons. I think one, the team was A plus, um, you know, really, really connected with uh, Ansel and, and, and Jeremy. Um, and then also the company was in a really interesting space because it was uh, essentially building a product of, of kind of what we needed at Lattice, right? You know, integrating into all these different uh, HR and, and, and business, you know, finance platforms. So really connected there. And, and here I am, you know, four months in, head of marketing, how to, you know, having a really good time. Awesome. Yeah, you, you definitely skipped over a bunch there. Let me let me just 
uh, give a <laughs> yeah, shout out can, to a couple of yeah, a couple of line items you missed there. So you were marketing analyst at Workday. You were a marketing operations manager at Shipwire, senior manager demand gen at Tintree, director of marketing at Big Panda. It sounds like that might be when you started kind of building marketing teams from scratch. Was that did that start with Big Panda? So. I've been at primarily early stage companies and every early stage company is different. The titles kind of mean very little. Um, (laughs) So I I would say like the real, the first real people building experience um, came at, actually it came at Heap um, Mm -hmm. where I was the the head of demand gen. I was actually, I know the title was head of demand gen, but I actually focused on, uh, I had events, content, demand slash growth. Uh, you know, and, and the SDR team for a hot second in my purview. So that was a uh, baptism by fire, yeah. <laughs> as you can probably imagine. Um, and that's where I really learned how to, you know, build a team and, uh, and, and, and have that under, the, you know, under my muscle. I built a, a larger team at Lattice. Uh, I had a team of seven. Um, and so I, I would say those two, those two orgs. Yeah. Whenever I speak to any head of demand gen or VP of demand gen, I'm like, so what's under your purview? And everyone has a different scope. And I'm like, wow, there's, yeah, you can't make any assumptions about what they own, like whether how big your scope is or how small you just got to ask before you, you jump in. Yeah. Well, I'd be curious. I mean, you spent some, some time at HubSpot and some other, you know, really cool companies and, and people AI, like what, what was under your, your purview as the product manager of growth and head of growth there? I mean, so HubSpot was an interesting thing for me because I joined the Sidekick growth team, which went on to become HubSpot sales. But we were kind of a incubated business unit separate from the rest of the company. Like we didn't go by the same processes. We had a whole separate marketing, whole separate product team, whole separate sales team. So we kind of had full reign to do a lot of different things. That being said, once we got combined in with the main marketing team where we ended up um, we were kind of in this weird limbo and no one really gave us clear job descriptions or anything. So I wouldn't say we had a very clear scope. It was, it was up to us to define. And some of us, let's just say some of us went a little bit more rogue than others, like working with the sales team, working with the product team. And that's how myself and many others ended up on the product team. Um, there, like the scope was much more clear, but there was still also, right. I'm just the type of person to say, Hey, we're not doing this thing. I see an opportunity. Like, let me go validate it. And then, like, I'm I was always expanding my scope whenever I got the chance. It's just how you. Got it. it was just fun, you know. It sounds like yeah, it sounds like a ton of fun. I was gonna say. Yeah, um, I mean, when I left, there were five thousand people, so it's a little bit of a different company. So, um, but so let, let's talk about this. One of the things that seems to come up frequently when I speak to early stage startups is how they one build the marketing team from scratch like that first marketing hire sounds like you've been that that person a couple times and then from there how do you know the next marketer to hire so walk us through that whole thought process like what what is it about you that like folks love to have you as the first person in and then like have you building out the team how do you think about building out the team yeah um i like pain that's 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 reason number one (laughs) high pain tolerance (laughs) or just like pain High pain tolerance. Yeah, that's that's the that's the number one um, experience we're looking for. Uh, no, I'm just I'm I'm, I'm kind of kidding. But I think as the as as like one of the early marketers and my kind of philosophy to building out a team is 
you kind of need so at the early stages there's always going to be more um functions than there are people right um it's it's kind of like a game of musical chairs where there's only two people playing but there's six chairs and so using that analogy um you kind of need to have someone that can occupy multiple chairs and can move around to different chairs because you still need all those chairs you just don't have enough people right mm -hmm. so i think in the early i would say maybe two to three hires you're going to be looking for all around generalists that can that are comfortable that have the desire not everyone has a desire which is completely fine because it's a completely different ball game so they have to have a desire to um you know play musical chairs in that environment but they also should ideally have the desire to be comfortable with uh, a more structured swim lane because that's what happens when you do well right when you do well mm -hmm. then you get a higher and build out a larger team and be more resourced. And so your early generalists um, might feel some friction because you know before they might have three or four things and now they only have one and they have to be okay yeah. with giving up their Legos. Um, so looking for that and then eventually as the company keeps growing, right? Like it, at Lattice has actually happened where it was an hourglass shaped, right? So hmm. you know, folks had a lot of responsibilities, they had fewer responsibilities. And then as the company continued growing, those uh, those individual chairs now are, are, are complete teams. So, you know, kind of someone that is comfortable with change um, and building out the org and being a good business partner is uh, is typically what we're looking for in the, in the early stages. Interesting. I haven't heard it described that described that way before. So early on, you have a really wide scope of like the top of the hourglass and then as you hire the team, your scope narrows because there's more people, but then each team also starts to expand as those teams succeed as well. Yeah, yeah, so I, exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah, Got I think it. It, it typically, yeah. So the, the first is when your company, when your marketing team's less than five people, it's that first phase. The second is like when your marketing team's probably five or 10. And then as the marketing team becomes more than 10 people, then all of a sudden those individual like chairs are, are multiple people sitting on those chairs. Yeah. So when you're that first one or, or two marketers on, on the team, how do you figure out where to focus? I mean, when I speak to startups, they're trying to do everything. They're doing Facebook ads, Google ads, SEO, webinars, social media. And like, I'm like, cool, you have bandwidth to do all that, but there's no focus. Like, how do you advise like startups or first marketing hires figure out where to prioritize and invest? Well, I think that's a really good question. So I think like it's a little, <laughs> there's no, there's no easy way to answer this question. I'd be curious to hear your experiences too, but I think like it's important to remember that every industry, every company, every vertical, every ICP is different. And a lot of folks I've seen that walk in with a set playbook and are kind of bent on, uh, just executing that playbook because it worked, it might've worked really well for them at a previous company. Um, it doesn't always work, right? That, I've learned, I've had to learn this the hard way, right? So I think at the beginning, you wanna do a bunch of different tests and it's okay to like, structured chaos <laughs> is okay because you're learning a lot about your market, about your, your prospects and customers that way. So a lot of tests. And then from there, hopefully you get some uh, channels uh, that work 
and then you double down on those channels and and from there you build a strategy right so it's a lot of learning in the early days i'd say spend your first three to six months like doing heavy testing even when it might seem to be uncomfortable because your sales team might be asking you to hey you know we need to generate pipeline you gotta buy yourself that time and then communicate that the the strategy is learning right because if you're not learning about your market you're not setting yourself up for for long run you know long-term success having said that is always it is also very important to communicate that strategy because if you don't communicate that strategy then people think you don't have a strategy so it's uh yeah. it's it's definitely a balancing act maybe uh to make it more tangible for listeners are there any scenarios that might come to mind say at heap or lattice or finch where like you ran a couple of different tests what those tests were how you validated them like what worked and so on like what what does that look like in practice in your experience so we're doing it at finch right now i mean i'm four months in uh i don't have all the answers yet which is which is fine you know luckily we have uh you know the buy-in of of the exec team and they understand what we're doing um we do have things that are working well so you know ads are scaling pretty well right like we're we we doubled the ad spend the first three months and we actually oh. improved on the cost per lead so to you know to me that that indicates hey we have a lot of room to grow here great we're mm-hmm. going to do more um we also ran a webinar uh, a couple months ago um got like 10 people to show up that didn't work yeah. as well we're not going to do more of that, right? No, just, no more webinars. A, a you know, webinar, right? <laughs> and it wasn't, it's hard to kind of pinpoint what didn't go wrong because we kind of, you know, applied all the previous learnings, um, but it's okay, right? We, we learned that verticalized webinars in a new space for us probably doesn't work as well. So we're gonna do less of that. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you also don't have like a ton of, like we have a three person marketing team right now. We don't have a ton of resources. So you have to be really smart about where you place your bets. Yeah. What, what other things are you testing out or hoping to test out? So it's a mixture of like, so the way I look at it is we have short-term pipeline goals, right? And revenue goals to hit. And if those are on fire, then it's all hands on deck, right? So uh, luckily right now, those are not on fire, right? We can always do better, but they're not on fire. So when, when that's the case, right, then we're making long-term bets. So mm-hmm. we just hired an SEO agency. Uh, we are looking for content resources, which, you know, I know that uh, uh, you do as well, right? So I think mm-hmm. those are the long-term bets that we hope are going to pay off six to 12 months down the line. Uh, and then maybe that will mean that we spend less on ads and we show more on the first page of Google for the things we want to rank for. Uh, so we're working on that right now. I think PR and brand building and website stuff, those are those are also things in that category. And we're working on all of those right now as well. Um, and then, you know, if if and when the pipeline goals are more, I, I wouldn't say dire, but like we're not we're not like writing a comfortable cushion, then we're going to shift our focus to more short term. Right now, it's pretty balanced, yeah. but I think it's just a, a matter of like, you know, where you move the, uh, you know, the toggle on the, on the balance. Yeah. Is so that- it's, it's, it sounds like there's a mix of like, Hey, there are long and short term bets, bets. And then there's also, I guess, different risk levels of bets. Like SEO is probably very low yeah. risk. 
Um, it just takes longer to see results from it. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I'd be curious your perspective on that too, because every marketer I've spoken to has has a different take, and they're all interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to it in in the current business that we're running right now. We tried a lot of different things. We we were doing uh, monthly webinars. We ramped them up to buy monthly, so every, twice a month. We're doing this podcast. We're do, we were doing blog SEO content for a little bit, going after some keywords, and we shifted to more like about leadership ish or like opinion based content. And a lot of things didn't work. Like we stopped doing our webinars, and we're still getting a lot of inbound coming through. So we're like, okay, that clearly didn't correlate with inbound. Um, right. We found out that the the intro level SEO content we produce we're, ta- we're targeting entry level people who would never become leads or wouldn't become leads in the next couple of months or years. So we shifted more to, hey, what do VPs and execs care about that we should be writing about instead that we have a lot of opinions no about, which, tail. yeah, exactly. So those are a couple of things that, that panned out. The podcast panned out really well. I mean, I'm not sure if you've started a podcast before, but hard to measure that like direct ROI, but we get the qualitative ROI. Like people have sent us feedback. People have shared our, our episodes with other people. We've gotten yeah. told by clients that they love the podcast. So there's there's other variables we're looking at that tells us, yeah, we should triple down on this. Well, we're talking next week on on uh, on you know for the content front. So I know it's great for brand awareness. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned earlier the the idea of getting exec buy in um, in what you're doing, and I think people who listen to this podcast range from like earlier. Uh, career folks to more senior, more tenured folks. I think for the tenured folks, like to us, getting buy-in is pretty obvious. Like we know how to do it, but I think for me, learning it was something that I had to figure out trial by fire, like watch how other leaders do it. So when you say get buy-in from the executive team, what does that look like tactically? And like, how do you build that trust so that they will trust that you can figure these things out, like and these strategies and things you're, you're testing out. Like, how do you build that uh, trust and get buy-in from them? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I, I made the mistake early on in my career as well, thinking that like, hey, look, it's in my brain. So if I just do what's in my brain and show results, it's all going to be gravy, right? No, that doesn't work that it's way. <laughs> it's not the case, uh, which is why it's hard, right? Which is why it's hard when you're early stage because you you have to do the strategy and get buy-in and also you have to do the thing. Um, I would say the things that have worked for me, the, the, the best has been just getting the thoughts down on paper, uh, whether that's we use Notion, whether that's a presentation, getting everyone in a room, and then walking them through, hey, here are here's what I'm thinking about doing high level for the year. Here's how that translates to business goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then asking for feedback. I think asking for feedback is really key because that's how you get that's how you really get people's thoughts on it. And and people when people have a chance to weigh in uh, and they're bought in, then you're going to have the support of the team because that's something you agreed on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think step number one is doing that. The second step is making sure that you are holding yourself accountable. And that means reporting out on, Hey, here's, here's the plan I originally planned. Here's what we did. Right. 
after three months, after six months, after, you know, a, a couple quarters. And here are the adjustments, proactively surfacing like adjustments mm-hmm. that you're making to, to fix the problems, right? That's how you are seen as leaders. Like, hey, you're the business owner of, of this group. You presented the plan. Great. We agree on the plan. Now you're executing on the plan and then you're making course, you know, course corrections to make sure that you're optimized uh, for the plan. So it's just constant communication and holding yourself accountable and, and, and looking for ways to kind of up, up level and help others like in the org. That's how you really, I think, get buy-in for the strategy. Yeah. And that even applies to like individual contributors too. If, if you want to do a new type of project or campaign and you got to pitch it to your manager, why, why do you think it's a good idea? What are the goals? What are you going to be measured by? How often are you going to give me updates on whether it's working or not? It's almost like just by nature of that transparent communication, that's how you get buy-in and build trust. 100%, right? Like if you're not sure what the goals of an action are, especially an action that takes a lot of time, then it's worth discussing that. And maybe, you know, you need to be connecting it to something. Otherwise, it, it probably is not as important. Yeah. Yeah. For us, one of our principles is asking, will it make the boat go faster? I forgot where it's from. Like, I think it's from some book, but like when you're on a, when you're rowing on a boat, like everyone needs to be rowing in the same direction, right? Otherwise you're not going to be going as fast as you can. If someone just like is fucking around or paddling in a different direction, just going to slow the boat down. So is what you're doing, like whether it's training or like doing cardio, is it going to help make the boat go faster? And if, if the answer is no, like, no, it will not contribute to the main business goals. Then you have to ask like, should you be doing that then? Is that really a priority right now? Or is it, is it a distraction? Yeah. When you have three rowers and one of them is in the, you know, rowing the wrong way or you're rowing in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's detrimental for sure. Yeah. So we, we talked about figuring out where to invest and like running a different test and doubling down on things that work. What are the signals that tells you it's time to start hiring a team or like making that the next couple of hires for marketing? I'm always thinking about, what's next because as i think uh you know and, and and you can speak to this as well as a as a leader of a function if you're not thinking what's next like the farther you think out right like the most senior roles you need to think out years you know ahead of time right and leaders of functions probably like six to 12 months um and then it, and then it kind of goes down from that right i think if you're i think like if you wait for the signals to say hey look you're uh if you wait for your manager to come to you and say, Hey, what would you do with one or two additional headcount? I think it's already too late. Um, oh, you need to be yeah. going to your manager by saying, Hey, look, I think the business can grow faster or I, I, I see an opportunity here, um, that we're not taking that we should be taking. Um, especially in this like macro environment, right? It was completely different. Maybe even two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you were getting, everyone's getting headcount. It was very easy to get headcount not so much anymore. You have to make a really strong business case, connect those, uh, you know, connect the dots, right? Hey, if we invested, for example, in ABM, um, here's how much revenue or, you know, pipeline we think we can generate with an additional marketing headcount, you know, maybe an SDR, you know, like a pod, right? Mm -hmm. And, and then kind of making the business case, and you need to make it, you know, kind of a no brainer. Right. And once you make that business case, then there's an approval cycle. Right. It's not sometimes it doesn't happen instantly, but eventually it will happen because the business will grow at some point. 
Um, and then that's when you get the head count, right? And so if you're not doing that, I'm not, I'm not trying to say like jostle with other people in the org to get head count, but if you're not doing that and other people are doing that, then guess what? Your head count's going to get prioritized, deprioritized, mm-hmm. right? So you got to have to, you got to be proactive with the resource planning, um, both from a budget perspective as well as a headcount perspective. Yeah. So that that's an interesting point. Like in this current macroeconomic state, like how do you even start making that case that, hey, we need to make this higher because it'll make this much revenue? If It feels like many things are uncertain, or at least a lot of marketing teams I've spoken to are kind of in the, the uncertainty, don't make decisions headspace right now. Right. I'm not sure if you're you're probably going through this process of like making a case for headcount right now, but like how would you how would you go about that? Uh this is kind of like marketing internally, right? Like we yeah. usually market externally. This is marketing internally. Selling, you got to you got to sell, right? You got to sell the stakeholders. Um every stakeholder is different. They think differently. Um you got to understand the way they think, right? And then you can also talk to other people in the org like, you know, hey, you know, sales leader, hey, engineering leader, what's worked well for you to build out kind of to get, you know, to get a buy-in for your headcount? Uh, they'll share, you know, they'll share the the tips and tricks with you. And then from there, you can build your own plan. Um, but I think typically in this, you know, business environment, people are focused on cash flow. So mm-hmm. there should be more talk tracks around kind of here's how much we could save, right? For example, if we're let's just say we're trying to make a, a case for a content manager uh, internally, right? Here's how much we're paying an agency right now. Uh, here's the additional output we can unlock if we have a content manager and then, you know, both short-term and, and long-term. And then here's how much we could actually save if we did that. Um, so I think the combination of like, you get more, but you might not be paying more, right? And you got to spell it out because CEOs are really busy people they're not paying attention to the business as closely as you are, um, or at least your function, you know? So like you have to articulate that and kind of go back to the basics. So I think, I think that's, that's worked well. Another thing that's worked well is kind of, um, waiting for the right moment, right? If the business had a bad quarter, don't ask for that headcount. It's, you're not going to, you know, you're going to look like you're, you know, irresponsible. Um, but right after a business, you know, has closes a big deal or comes off a big, month or quarter, I think that's a really good time to kind of go and double down on your case. Is yeah. that, is that, is that how you've seen as well? In, in, in yeah. Previous I mean, you mentioned something around if you're trying to learn how to build a case and like sell internally, it helps to speak to your peers who have done that thing before. And that was something that I don't talk about a lot, but when I was at HubSpot as it grew, I, sometimes my direct VP wouldn't wouldn't give me his buy-in so i would go to other vps who i knew would be stakeholders and what i was pitching and align with their goals and i would get their yeah. buy-in who would then tell my vp like hey this is a good idea or something and then i'd work with like the other vps direct reports to make sure it's aligned with their efforts too so it's definitely a game of politics which i think people think is really icky but by nature of big orgs like that's it takes a team and like making sure that's how you also make sure it's aligned with business goals. Otherwise, like Whoa. it's way too easy to just do a bunch of random stuff and go rogue. So I, I completely relate to that. Yeah, that's what are, advice, especially with a larger company. What are some mistakes you've made in 
building out a marketing function. I'd love to hear maybe some some stories from the trenches. Ooh, mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, been doing this for 13 years. So I think uh, if you were to ask me kind of like the biggest mistakes, uh, I think the biggest mistakes that uh, I made a list of them here. So <laughs> I, I think like <laughs> the biggest you mistakes have a list I think of in mistakes. the early days. You, have, you, keep a track, you keep track of all your mistakes. Oh, you got to keep track of the, well, wow. like mentally, you know, yeah. if you want to oh, write okay. them down, you can write them down. Like, you know, but uh, uh, like I can see putting a whiteboard. Here are all yeah. the mistakes that you made, right? Just looking at it every day. Hopefully Maybe you have like a list of wins too. You know? <laughs> yeah, wins. No, just the negatives. No, no you got to have, have wins. I think mistakes are, I, I see them as learning opportunities, right? And um, a mistake I made in my early career, and sometimes I still make this mistake right now, is not unblocking yourself and trying to do mm -hmm. everything yourself, right? Um, sometimes you don't have the option, but most of the time you'd be surprised at the options out there uh, if you just think about it, right? Like, do you really have to, people come to you with asks and that's completely fine, but are you the best person to do that specific thing? Or are there others on the team that you can leverage to help accomplish the goals, right? That will save up, that will unblock yourself. And it'll also have you be more of a collaborator, right? If you try to do everything yourself, which I used to try to do, used to try to do everything, um, you're not going to succeed um, because you're just being reactive. And people are going to find out, hey, this person's really good at doing the thing. Um, and then they're going to come to you more or, or mm -hmm. with more things, right? Like an early example is I was at a company um, where, you know, my title was demand gen. And I needed to build all these nurturing tracks and lead scoring, you know, things and, and like demand gen things. But I, uh, people would come to me for Salesforce admin things oh. because I would get it done the most quickly, yeah. like building lists, reports, like fields, workflow formulas, the whole shebang. I became really good at Salesforce, but I was known as the Salesforce person which is fine, but I didn't want to be the Salesforce person. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to be the Salesforce person, don't do the Salesforce things, <laughs> right? Make the case on how else this can be done. And like, not everything that comes to you needs to be done. You have to, you have to look at your own objectives because if you don't do your own objectives and those aren't, aren't, you know, don't go well, then you're not going to succeed. Even though you do it, even if you do a great job at this other thing that, you know, people comes, uh, you know, come to you for. So the biggest learning is like, don't do everything. You don't need to do everything that people come to you for prioritize, uh, and unblock yourself by unlocking other resources, right? Figuring out for the company, how else this can be done. Mm -hmm. Are there any ways that you might've blocked yourself as like a manager or like as that person building, building out the function, like it sounds like that's more of like maybe as an IC, they might be getting dragged into things that sure they're great at, but shouldn't be spending their time on. What about as a manager? As a manager, it's, it's harder as a manager. It's harder as a manager. 
I think as a manager, it's more important to stay in lockstep and communicate with the people with uh, with your peers, right? And your peers are always changing. That's like mm-hmm. one thing that I had to learn uh, at Lattice because my peers were changing like every six months. Wait, what does that mean? Like new people starting or people churning? Why are they yeah. changing so new, often? New people starting, new people starting. Okay. <laughs> so early days of Lattice, there was the CRO and then there were a bunch of AEs, right? Well, she was the VP of sales, but um, you know, everyone reported to, to her, right? So it was easy to go to her and get buy-in and then there wasn't a lot of communication between all the different levels, right? As Lattice grew, you know, around a hundred person company, there was a, 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 a middle layer, right? So now all of a sudden the communication got a lot harder because now there's three levels of people in sales. There's the VP of sales, there's the middle management, and then there's the ICs. Yeah. And then as it continued to grow, there's four layers, right? New departments sprung up. Sales enablement was a department that didn't exist, you know, uh, you know, at Lattice in the early days. So you kind of have to like learn how to work with those folks and learn and scope out roles and responsibilities and swim lanes. Mm-hmm. Um, those are two terms that, you know, don't exist in the early days. But if you don't understand the swim lanes, if you don't like, if those aren't clear cut, then there's going to be a lot of uh, toil on your team and double work because People don't understand what other folks are doing and how to work with them. And it's up to you as a manager to make sure those are clear for your team. Otherwise, otherwise it's not going to go well. Yeah. How do you go about main, like as a team scales and grows, you have to change the way you're communicating both horizontally with peers and also with your various direct reports. And if your direct reports also have direct reports, that's a whole another layer too. But how do you think about communication cadence? Is it a, I guess this is pretty tactical, but is it weekly meetings, at, weekly team meetings, plus weekly one-on-ones? How do you think about staying in lockstep with your team and your peers? Yeah, so well, I'm going to do a shameless plug for, for Lattice. Um, <laughs> uh, Lattice, I think Lattice is a really good tool, not only for like performance management, which is known for, but also like people management um, because it, it creates a, forcing function and a, a framework for you to have those discussions with your direct reports and also ask for feedback, right? So uh, tactically, it's, we have weekly marketing team meetings. Um, some people like to do like standups. I think standups are a little bit too often. Um, mm-hmm. I like to do, you know, marketing meetings, uh, you know, every Monday morning. And then we have one-on-ones. We have like standing one-on-ones with uh, the direct reports, like, you know, my direct reports, we also have ad hoc meetings. And then we also have like, uh, because we're a a fully remote company right now, like we're, we're, uh, we have a lot of like, uh, like we have a a weekly company memo and everybody like goes in and edits their, their portion. Yeah. And then we talk about that portion during the weekly meeting and, and see what the blockers are. Um, on top of that, uh, we, we're also thinking about creating updates, right? Um, updates are, are like one-on-ones between you and your manager, but in written form. And it, it, you know, you can, you can decide what questions are asked, but it's, it's typically like, 
how are you feeling this week, right? And it's an emoji, right? Sad emoji, happy emoji, hopefully happy emoji. And then what are the, you know, top things that, uh, you know, like what's top of mind for you? What are the top things that you're, you're blocked on? So it's kind of like opening that room for your manager or you to unblock things for your direct reports. And, thing, and a lot of things get surfaced during those meetings and some of those things move to the one-on-ones you know, for more discussion. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's typically, I think like from a up and down perspective, that's how it works. From a horizontal perspective, um, it's up to the company to kind of help you, right? With those, right? Like, you know, there needs to be manager meetings, there needs to be functional meetings, right? Like the company doesn't do the functional meetings, but it's up to you to set functional meetings with, you know, for marketing, it might be, you know, with product, it might be with sales, mm-hmm. it might be with um, success, right? All the groups you're there to help support, you got to have clear lines of communication for both like a larger working group, but also directly with that leader so that you can discuss with the, you know, the leader, those priorities. But yeah. David, you've, you've worked at 5,000 person companies. So I think like, I, I'd be curious what that looks like at even larger orgs. I mean, when I was at HubSpot, there's this, as a product manager, my day was just meetings, to be completely honest. It was meeting with other PMs that we had overlapping or like work that impacted each other to align on what was going on, meeting with my pod of engineering design, um, myself product, and then like any analysts that were involved and any marketers that were involved. It was working with my marketing counterpart to like prepare any announcements that need to be made to customers. So yeah. There are a lot of cross-functional meetings for me and definitely different for design and engineering teams. And then there was meeting with my direct manager and then the other stakeholders that I need to, like, I wanted to build relationships with one-on-one. And then, of course, like, the meeting with all the stakeholders in one room on the projects I was working on. So <laughs> there are yeah. always meetings. And it was, it was I, I spoke about this on another podcast with Sarah Kiefer from Pitch, but I was saying, like, I learned to understand the power of presentations through that process because lo and behold everyone had a question about this thing i've spoken about five people about already so hey here's a here's my deck that walks through everything and that saved me a meeting right so i i really started to appreciate the the power of pitch decks and using that as a communication tool instead of adding you know five more meetings to my week love it yeah so you mentioned um couple years ago, like you were doing Lattice and then the pandemic happened and like everyone's remote now. What has changed in like terms of team building and hiring in this fully remote culture now? I'm assuming Finch is fully remote, right? Finch is, Finch is fully remote. We're doing a, like a test pilot, uh, in, in SF where it's, we're testing hybrid in SF. We just got like a nice office on right on market. Uh, it's good to see people in person. Probably cheap know. right now too. Cheap for office oh, space it's, right now. <laughs> probably pretty cheap. Yeah. I was like, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was telling, uh, Ansel who was our CEO. I was like, Hey, should we, should we lock in a longer term deal? But it, it's kind of <laughs> uncertain because when you're, when you're a smaller company, you don't know how fast you're going to grow, you know? So, yeah. uh, so you want to lock in too much. Um, Lattice was the opposite. Actually. I remember, uh, right before the like March, 2020, uh, and everything kind of, shut down. We had just signed a many, many, many year lease 
on a office space that I think could accommodate between four to 500 people. Wow. Uh, really nice. They spent uh, a good amount on the build. Um, so, I mean, that was just bad luck, but, but I think there's, yeah. you know, it's nice, you know, kind of see like both sides of the coin, but back to your original question around kind of like how has team building and hiring changed since the pandemic? Um, it's, it's changed a lot. As you can probably imagine, it's been a roller coaster ride, right? Um, I had folks at Lattice that were like, I hadn't seen before in person until like two years after, uh, after we, you know, we'd been working together, which is kind of crazy if you think about that. Right. Um, yeah. but I think at the beginning, I mean, everyone was kind of dealing with the same thing. Right. Um, and the macros were also different. So it was a competitive environment. You know, everyone was really employee friendly and, um, and had all the, you know, different perks. I think Lattice did an especially good job of that. Um, but then the macros, you know, recently have changed and, um, our, you know, return to office is now a larger thing for, for some companies, some companies are, you know, mandating it. And so I think that affects not only like, team building, but it affects hiring because now all of a sudden the important attributes of folks that you might be looking for may have changed or, you know, you're looking for folks that can kind of roll more with the punches. But I think in like a hybrid slash remote environment, in terms of hiring, like the, the folks that we looked for that were successful were, you know, fully autonomous. They could be a business partner, right? Like they don't need a ton of oversight. Uh, it's hard to, you know, like, how do you filter for those things? How do you, oh. <laughs> how do you get to the, the root of that? I think it's just like independence of thinking, right? Like you give them a hard problem and then you see how they think about it. Uh, for us, it's like presentations, right? And I think mm-hmm. interviews are a microcosm of how, how they'll be in the workplace. So if there's like smoke in the interview, like find out that source of the smoke, and, and, and go deep on that. Um, but it's, it's really just kind of thinking about how they think. And also references are more important than ever because there's also like, you got to make sure they, some people present really well, but they're a little bit different in the workplace. Other folks are the opposite. They work really well and then they don't present that well. So sometimes the people we end up hiring are not the folks that present the best because unless your job is only to present, right. It's, it's like, it's thinking about how, you know, how well they work as well. So. Yeah. What, what type of projects do you like to give or what, what, what are they presenting on that helps you figure out if they're the right person or not? So it's a good question. Um, we don't want to, you know, we're not, we're not here to ask people to do free work. So it's primarily things that mirror like what we've done in the past. Like we could like, uh, you know, one example for a, a demand gen hire might be, Hey, we're thinking about, partnering with so-and-so for an event. Um, and, you know, how would you, yeah, how would you think about your involvement in this in, in like different areas? Like how would you think about co-marketing? What would the structure of the event be? Uh, you know, walk us through why you decided, you know, to make those choices. And then, you know, what are the goals of the events and who else would you work with? And kind of going deep. I think you learn a lot, right? Because, um, because you know, folks like that's, that's really deep and a a lot of folks are not, are not comfortable, but those are the types of projects. I think on the content front, 
it's it's you know it's it's asking for samples but it's also um doing like a real-time exercise because then you get a good sense yeah. of like what questions they ask and like how how they you know how like how they work and, and, and you know and whatnot but i'd be curious like everyone has a different philosophy there and given how important hiring is like what have you seen that has worked so for the hardest role we found to hire for is our like SEO and content strategist role, who's client facing and builds out the, the strategies for our clients. Because there's so many different personality traits that often you don't find in one person. Um, we used to do presentations and we decided that wasn't the right path for us. What we've since been yep. doing is live working sessions. So it feels yep. like they don't need to prepare anything, but they it does keep them on their toes. We don't tell them what we're going to be doing. And, and if they do listen to this podcast, they're going to hear what, what we do. But we essentially, <laughs> we essentially on the spot, we say, hey, we know this is on the spot, so we don't expect you to be perfect. We're going to give you a link to a website, and we'd like for you to think out loud how you would start analyzing them and their competitors and pull up spreadsheets, whatever tools you have. At, like, this is free-flowing. We may ask some questions. And we make it intentionally nebulous. And we intentionally ask difficult questions as if we were the client. And yeah. people really shine in that process. They either really shine yeah. or they really they really, they really like yeah. do horribly. And it makes the answer much, much more obvious, right? Because we've had people who interview really, really well, but once we go to the live working session, they completely bomb it. Which yep. you know, we were really excited and then we get bummed out because we were really ex hopeful about them, but that's why we do these things, right? Like it's to weed out people who are really good at interviewing, but may not be able to, you know, really uh, walk the walk when it, when it comes it's down to it. It's different when you have a ton of time, unlimited amount of time to prepare for, for something versus when you have to think on yeah. the spot. And if your role requires a lot of critical thinking, thinking on the spot, then it's, it's really good thing to, you know, thing to, te uh, you know, test for. Yeah. yeah. Love it. So uh, I, I did some research for this interview with you and on another talk you did, you mentioned uh, at Finch that you're using a tool called Gather. I'm not even going to try to butcher explaining what it is because I think I know what it is, but I'm not, I, I don't fully understand. So could you tell us what is Gather and how are y'all using it and like how, how's it going with that? Yeah, Gather owes me some uh, like a referral kickback for all the times I mentioned them. No, but they're they're really cool. Uh, so Gather is there's no other thing like it. Um, it's kind of like a video game, but the video game is like there's like a map, right? And the map is whatever like you can. We have Gather architects that just build out new areas. It's a map. It's like a virtual office, and you can walk to different places in the office. Like you can walk to the kitchen area. We have our all hands in like an all hands area. Uh, and you can simulate like water cooler chats, right? If you walk near someone, the, both of your videos will turn yeah. on and you can talk to each other. And then there's different rooms you can go to for one-on-ones. Basically it's like a virtual office. Uh, given that Finch has been fully remote, um, it's been a great tool for us to get some of those random interactions right in the office that you would have back. And then some folks really like it. Other folks are like not a fan. And so, um, where do you, you know, sit on that camp? <laughs> I'm like somewhere in the middle, right? I think okay. it can be uh, really good for 
it can be a distraction um, at times, but it can also be really good if you are like feeling like trapped from remote work, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? You're in the same space. Like, you know, back when we went to the office, we would go outside and, you know, take whatever transportation. Now, like you're spending your whole day in your room. And I think sometimes when you're feeling the effects of that, it can be good to go into gather and just go talk to people. Right. Yeah. It looks like it can be like, don't talk to me. I'm, I'm, you know, like there needs to be like a cone zone, right? Like don't distract me, but it's a really cool tool, right? You don't have to be in there all the time. There's no expectation on how often you are in gather, like, you know, but so, so it's to each their own. Interesting. Yeah. I'm on a website. It, it reminds me of like the old school. I don't know if you were a gamer when you were younger, but like old school Final Fantasy or Zelda games, like it looks designed very similarly. And it, I can imagine myself just going in and exploring doing side quests or something, but that's probably not how it's used. It's, it's a giant video game. Yeah. It's a great way to describe it. <laughs> Uh, what do you what do you enjoy doing outside of marketing and work? Yeah, um, well, lately, so lately I've been okay. I'll, I'll give you two things. The first is like uh, going on runs and now bike rides. Um, you know, the Peloton. The Peloton's nice, but it's it's even nicer to be outside, right? Just yeah. riding. We're we're like. I live in the Bay Area and there's there's just so many nice areas to kind of do that at. Um, and so I also have a dog that requires a lot of exercise. So it's nice to oh, what get kind of dog as well. Uh, Pitbull, actually. Oh, yeah. So same here. He's uh, passed out right back there. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. What a sweet dog. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. What's, what's their name? Uh, he's Chance. Chance. Okay. My, my name is... Uh, my dog's name is Cash, so nice. Um, That's a great Cash dog name. On, on Instagram, if you want to, you want to take a look. <laughs> what was that? Uh, Cash. So Cash dot Woofer. Uh, Cashifer Woofkin. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of long. His his name is Cash, but then it's like Cashifer, like Cash-tifer. Christopher, but Cashifer, yeah. <laughs> and then W O O F K E N. Yeah. yeah, I love these um, random dog names. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing we like to, we've been actually doing a lot more of recently, um, is like l- local tourism. So like we'll go to like San Francisco, you know, take Bart up, and then we'll you know we might check out a museum or something, and then we'll go find like a hole in the wall place to to go eat, right? And then just kind of spend a, a day in the city. Um, we we live like twenty minutes south, so it feels like a vacation. It feels like a new place to explore, like a but trip. it's not. Yeah, yeah, it's like a little trip. So we've been doing a lot of that on the weekends. That's cool. Yeah, when I'm I'm from Long Beach, California, and for us the equivalent yeah. was driving to LA. Like it's not that far, but with traffic, it takes like an hour or two to get there. So it feels like you're going kind of far. Like you're spending a lot of time in a car. Um, yeah, yeah. I think everyone has like yeah. I think LA is like even better because like you have all these. You can go to San Diego. You can go to Santa Barbara. You can go you know inland Joshua Tree. Um, Palm Springs. You have so many like nice options to kind of just do the, uh, yeah. the weekend getaway. Yeah, sounds like you're trying to sell me to move back to to LA right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, oh man, I, I do miss those places. <laughs> yeah, you're in Boston now. I'm in Boston right now. Yeah, yeah. there. There's a cool town plenty too, of good yeah. stuff out here. Yeah, we're like oh, yeah. going going on a lot, of, planning to do a lot of camping and hiking this summer. Yeah, nice, cool. 
All right. Well, I know we're coming up on time. So how about we close out with a couple uh, closing questions and then we'll wrap it up from there. Sounds good. Let's do it. Sweet. What is one opinion you have about business you think people would disagree with? Yeah, this is a hot take getter, I would imagine. I think like this is this might not be as as hot of a take, but I think in general, like a rule of thumb is I've seen like folks really value their previous experience, right? Everyone has a lot of good experience, but I think we assign as humans, we assign too much values, too much value to things that have worked well for us in the past. And we try to replicate that at wherever we bring that experience to. And more often than not, I've made this mistakes plenty of times, right? It doesn't work out. Um, and, and the way I've seen it in practice, like they over-index on campaigns, right? For example, on the marketing front, they over-index on people that they work with, right? They, they bring in their friends. It's easy to bring in your friends and your friends might be really good at what they do, but it also kind of like, it narrows your hiring pool and your talent pool. If you only, only work with people that you've worked with well in the past. Now you, you bring in the stars, but if you bring in everybody, then it's like, okay, you know, there's, there's probably, you can open up your hiring pool. And the other thing is kind of like not learning about the space enough before assigning a playbook or, you know, assigning a, a plan. That's why I think that the first three to six months at any role, regardless of your, you know, seniority is extremely important. You need to learn about the space and understand before you can, you know, adequately kind of, you know, come up with a plan. Got it. So people are anchoring too much on previous experience in people and yeah. it would benefit them to do less of that. Yeah. I think like I, another controversial thing while we're on this topic is I think that there are a lot of smart people at, you know, big brands, right? Um, brands that you've heard of and a lot of people over index on, Hey, this person came from Google or this person came from, you know, Amazon, right? They must be really good. Right. And, and you're, you're like a 50 person startup. Um, if they've only worked at like large companies, they're, they're in for a shock, you know, like yeah. there's so much process at these larger companies, you got to have a, a, a well-rounded range. And it really depends on like. I wouldn't overhire on the brand um, if you're a, a, a tiny little person company because like there's there's all these like you need to go you know wide and shallow instead of deep and deep and narrow. It's helpful to hear that when when we started scaling and hiring people more quickly, we had to come up with a couple of guardrails for ourselves, right? So similarly, similar to what you said, when someone has like a Google or Amazon or something on their resume, it's almost a disqualification. For, for us, like we choose not to move forward with them. And this might yeah. be also a hot take, but we're like, yeah, if they have like an Ivy League degree, we also, I mean, they're probably not applying for us, but we're probably just not gonna take them because that's a, a very different type of DNA than I think what we'd want. Yeah, is there is there some sort of, like, how do you think about the balance between, like, I think it's good to have that big company experience, but like, how do you think about the balance between, like, like what are you looking for you know, when you're hiring? I think this comes down to when when I was asking about how you filter for those certain traits. Some of it is how they talk about their previous work. If they came from a bigger or big-ish company, if they're speaking in terms of, yeah, I want to do all these things, but I kept getting blocked, that's probably the energy we want more of, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if there isn't that energy, it probably meant that 
they were sticking to a lot of the processes and not questioning how things were done very much at a bigger company, which you probably know this, but as a company gets bigger, there's plenty of things to question. And so we look, we look for that eagerness or hunger to like just do really good work or things that excite them. Um, which yeah. is, there, there's no one or two questions to ask that help you get there. It's kind of a gut feel, which I've, I've learned is yeah. what, what hiring is all about. That's why hiring and interviewing is hard. I think one other just really quick point on that is like, I think a lot of folks are, a lot of folks that are not good interviewers are not braggy enough, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And I'm not saying like, I think most of the time being not braggy is great, but interviews is different. Interviews, that's your time to brag about yourself, right? And so if you're using only we's, um, you're not talking about yourself enough. And people are not hiring the people that you work with previously. People are hiring you. So I think, uh, so I think, you know, that's something I've noticed in, in interview, you know, processes, especially for folks that are like more humble and uncomfortable about, you know, talking about themselves. That's like where you really need to talk about yourself. Yeah. That's advice I've given to friends, actually. Like they'll tell me that they did this thing and they were surprised it works well. I was like, you and I both know we're not surprised that you did a great fucking job. So stop, right. stop being so humble and just take credit. Yep. Hey, that's pretty All good. Right. We we went an, almost an hour without saying without saying fuck. So that's how <laughs> we got one in. Yeah, had to had to put one in there somewhere. All right, what is one impactful piece of advice you've been given? So, this is advice that I got at uh, at Lattice actually. So the leadership team, one of the things that they always talked about was um, you have to reinvent yourself every six to 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even for me as like a relatively senior person there, it didn't occur to me how much you need to reinvent yourself. Um, like I've been in hyper growth, but I think like, you know, reinventing yourself and just kind of like understanding your role has to change. Understanding that what you're doing today is not going to be what you're doing in six to 12 months if you want to be successful and continuing to think about how to position yourself to be the most successful for the business. And I think that's just thinking about what the business needs, where your specialties are and how the business is growing. And then just kind of like triaging the, you know, all three, um, to, to make yourself successful. So I think that's like probably the most valuable lesson I learned, um, you know, at, at, you know, at the crazy run that was, was Lattice. How do you figure out how you're supposed to be evolving? (laughs) That's the hard part. Yeah, that's the hard part. I think part of it is like leaning on previous experiences, right? I just said, don't lean on previous experiences. Now I'm telling, (laughs) now I'm saying to lean on previous experiences. I'm not saying to lean on previous experiences in terms of like running the same playbook, but also like leaning on like understanding kind of what the org structure was at different times of a company's life cycle, um, understanding, distilling how, like what was effective on comms, like for yourself, right? Okay. We sent a lot of Slack messages early on. Now Slack doesn't scale as well because there's all these like group channels that have you know, six people in it, but you can't remember the exact combination. It makes it harder to find things. Maybe we need to move to email threads. Um, just kind of 
I know that was a very tactical example, but thinking back to kind of things that worked well that you saw other leaders do, um, and then kind of emulating and reinventing those yourself at your, your own company and putting yourself in those roles, um, you know, have served well in the past. The other thing is just asking folks that have kind of seen the next stage, um, and, 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 and asking them what works and then applying that, you know, to yourself and, and, you know, and I think that tends to work out well because, um, you know, there are a lot of similarities between companies that have grown to certain sizes and, and that have been in hyper growth that can be copied from company to company. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things I, I've kind of landed on that same realization myself where I'm like, oh yeah, my job's just going to keep changing. And if it's not changing, the business is probably not growing. And yeah. I, there like once a quarter, once every six months or so, I need to just book a hotel, do a staycation away from like my girlfriend and away from my friends and just sit and think yep. and journal and be like, I guess this applies to both work and life, but is my life or is my work where I want it to be? What, yep. what do I need to do differently? Like, how do I need to evolve? And that sort of stuff has always been very valuable. It's hard to put a tangible benefit or exactly how to do a thing, but just giving yourself space to think helps. Yeah. And, and, and more tactically, I think on that point, I love that. Um, I love the, you know, just spending time to think is really, is really valuable, but more tactically, I think like auditing your calendar, right? Mm -hmm. Meetings take up a ton of time. Are there meetings that you need to cut? Are there meetings that you need to do more of? Are there meetings that are, you, you see that you should be in, but you're not in? Get yourself in those meetings uh, and just kind of continuing to audit not only your meeting calendar, but just your time in general, I think has been really valuable. I love that. That's a good reminder. I need to do that soon. All right. What is one book you'd recommend more people read? So I think both books behind me, right? <laughs> These are, so this is the high growth what handbook. You like yep. Really good book yep. for startups. And then this is another maybe shameless plug, um, People Strategy. Uh, is business strategy. Um, that was, you know, um, I think it taught me a lot about kind of, you know, how to work with direct reports and, and, you know, make them successful. And also the people strategies that you should take to maximize the potential of your team. Right. So mm. two really good books. Well, that one was people strategy. Uh, yeah. People strategy is, is, is yeah. People strategy by, by Jack Altman. Who's Jack the CEO of Labs. Altman. Okay. Found it on Amazon. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for more good books around like, building out people ops and all that. I just finished multipliers on how to become a better manager. Okay. That was, that was really good. So this might need to be the next one here. I got to check. I got to check out multipliers. Dude, so many notes and the margins and post-it notes on that. It, like every chapter was super actionable for me. So I, I highly recommend that to anyone who like, whether you're a manager or like individual contributor who has to work with a lot of different people. Um, very impactful read. Love that. All right. So where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. LinkedIn. I do a lot of posting on LinkedIn. I used to do a lot more, but I, I'm trying to get back into it. Um, Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, L-I-A-N-G. Um, I'm the, there's not that many Charlies, you know, so, so you'll be able to find me. Uh, Twitter, uh, Charlie C. Liang. Um, so yeah, those are, those are probably the two best places. Sweet. We'll make sure to link to those in the show notes, Charlie. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully it was uh, helpful for, for folks that made it this far. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Cool, thanks.